Hey, welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. I want to share with you what has been one of the most impactful understandings for me in my adult life. The concept of God's view of me, of, of God the Father's love, and the true identity of those who are followers of Jesus. If I were to ask you, tell me about yourself, uh, who are you? What would you say? What would come to mind first? How do you explain you to somebody else? Most people answer who they are in relationship with other people or not, uh, or with what they do. In fact, um, to kind of venture out a little bit, uh, stereotypically, what men usually do is answer with what they do, uh, what they do by for a living or by trade. However, what, what I've noticed is when that trade is lost or that person doesn't do that thing anymore, they say, I used to be a fill in the blank, whatever it is. And so that's stereotypically what I've come to find out with men. More often with women, what I've come to experience is they share who they are in light of who they're in relationship with. They may say, I'm a wife, a mother, I'm single, divorced, engaged, widowed. And so what happens oftentimes is an identity crisis of sorts sometimes comes for some when that relationship changes. And so they may say, well, I used to be with so-and-so, or I was a fill-in-the-blank. So followers of Jesus, you know, have to be reminded of who we are in Jesus because when we forget, we're prone to believe lies about ourselves that aren't true. And the reason why this matters is because even though relationships may change in the world around us, we may change, have a change of job or have a loss of job, who believers are in Christ will never change. That it's secure, it's final. So over the next several episodes, what I would like um, to do is just encourage you in your identity in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you proclaim Christ or call yourself a Christian, I want to talk about your identity, who you are as a result of God's love and work in you. So I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1 today. And Ephesians is, a, is an amazing letter. Uh, It's only six chapters or 155 verses. And to paraphrase one scholar, Ephesians may be the most influential document in history. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison, likely around AD 62, um, to believers around Asia Minor, and most notably in Ephesus, to the believers in Ephesus, which would have been like the fourth, I think, or fifth largest city in the world at the time. Uh, This city, Ephesus, was known for different forms of paganism, like from like snooty, highbrow Greek thought and philosophy uh, to Roman emperor worship. Uh, in fact, that kind of worship was often known for celebrating the birth and the good news of Augustus at the time. Uh, also in Ephesus, there was the Temple of Diana. In Greek, that'd be Artemis, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So there would have been hedonistic forms of worship, uh, just basically outright debauchery in the city of Ephesus. So it's a spiritually confused and conflicted place. Does that sound familiar? The church in that region then was birthed in that environment, one person at a time. And people were giving up their gods when they came to know Jesus or came to trust in Jesus 
and coming to trust in the one true God. And it was happening at such an alarming rate that actually the local silversmiths were losing business because people stopped purchasing silver idols. And Paul had his longest stay in ministry in Ephesus, lasting about three years. Luke writes in Acts 19, as a result of Paul's ministry, uh, all the residents of Asia heard the message about the Lord. That's even just as amazing today as it was then to even consider that, that thought. So concerning this letter, usually when Paul wrote, he addressed a problem for believers in a specific region. But this letter is more like reflective than it is corrective. This letter was distributed around Asia Minor region. And because of its less specific nature, its application to today is just as valid as it was then. It's like Paul could have written this letter to a 21st century church. It's really a book of encouraging and equipping. So in the first few chapters, there's an emphasis on God's activity in his redemptive plan, looking at the past, the present, and the future. And what Paul's doing is he's reminding believers of what the gospel really is. Later in the letter, we see an emphasis on human responsibility. But Paul's purpose in the first section of the letter is to praise the God who saves. So a breakdown of the book, if you will, could be chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about who we are in Christ. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 is about what we do. So 1, 2, 3, who we be, 4, 5, 6, what we do. And who we are informs what we do. Before we can understand uh, God's work for us that he has us to do, we have to understand our identity in Christ. So let's study the true identity of the believer. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll read just verses 1 through 3 to start here. But Paul, so Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. So what we see here is we're looking at how Paul describes God's view of the believer. He first blesses God. He praises God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and says that God has blessed us in Christ which is a Pauline phrase, the phrase in Christ. We'll hear that often with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. So because of Jesus, the first identity claim that we can make, you know, tell me about yourself. What could you say? Well, the first uh, thought here in verse three is that because of Jesus, I'm blessed. And Christians are blessed with every spiritual blessing. The, the word spiritual in the verse here, spiritual blessings here, tells us the divine origin of our blessing. The blessings are most often God's character developed in us. His joy, his peace, patience, kindness, goodness, his long-suffering. And so this is a natural outworking of a moment-to-moment dependence or relationship on him. This relationship of trust is one in which we relinquish control and follow him in every area of life. Hmm. So the text says we are blessed in Christ in the heavenly places. One scripture tells us that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. That means We're blessed. So just as uh, these identity truths are to build us up and embolden us, like saying, I am blessed, there are actually also our lies often thrown our way in correspondence to each identity claim. So the problem is, is this, in this identity claim of being blessed, the lie that is often offered to us is that we're cursed or that like God is withholding good from us. Like he has it at his disposal, but he's just choosing and not offering good things to us, offering us his character, offering us 
um, more of like who he is. And so what happens is, is when we believe a lie, like, well, God's holding out on me or he's withholding or I'm cursed, it really does us a disservice. It like deceives us. You can think about Genesis chapter one through three, when Eve is in the garden and she sees that the fruit is pleasing to the eye and good to eat. And the accuser tells us, tells her, you know what? God's really holding out on you. You could be like him, but he just doesn't want you to be. And the text tells us that she was deceived. Both the Old and New Testament tells us that Eve was deceived. And and we can be as well when we believe the opposite of the truth. The scriptures say that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We We have everything we need in Christ for that which matters for eternity. And yet oftentimes we might think and be deceived. You know, I'm especially cursed or God's withholding a good thing from me. So it would be enough. It'd be enough for the Christian life just to say, I'm blessed. But actually, there's even more. Verse 4 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we're blessed. And then verse 4 says, Because of Jesus, I am chosen. If you're in Christ, you've been chosen by Christ. And so the word chose here and the word predestined, which can be found in verse 5 and verse 11, or the word election you may see in Scripture or have Um, discussions with friends about these words. These words can make people feel really uncomfortable, but they aren't really scary words. They're just Bible words. These words encourage us in knowing God's sovereign work in salvation. And we can agree, I hope, that there's a great mystery in the doctrine of salvation. And I want to affirm that mystery, but I also want to affirm what is clear in the text. In the text, we see that God is loving, gracious, sovereign, and in control of all things, including his own redemptive plan. You see, the idea of God choosing people to display his glory isn't a new thing. Uh, For instance, in the Old Testament, he chose Abraham out of paganism. He chose the nation of Israel from their idolatry. Later, we see Jesus choosing um, people to be his apostles. So here in this text, the believers reminded, just like in those other texts, that God chooses people to himself. Romans chapter 9 through 11 shows us this. Acts 13, Titus 1, 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1. God chooses people to himself. Uh, The Greek form of the verb behind choose or chose indicates that God not only chose to himself, but for himself to the praise of his glory. So his gracious purpose in regenerating, justifying, and sanctifying, and glorifying sinners works in concert with a person's responsibility um, to trust or believe in Jesus. And we can have that agreement because verse 13 says one must believe. Later on, we'll see that. God's work in salvation then removes the possibility of anyone boasting in their own effort, and it actually promotes humility as we recognize what he's done. And that's what this whole first section in Ephesians is about, is praising God for what he's done, and then us celebrating him for who we are in him. Hmm. Well, some may ask then, well, when did God choose? When did that happen? And the verse 4 tells us, the text tells us, before the foundation of the world, the scripture says. So God loves first, and then people respond to his great love by receiving his love. A follow-up question that would be fair to ask is, well, then why did God choose? Well, the text tells us that God chose you on purpose for his purposes, which is to be as him in this world, or as Paul says it, to be holy and blameless. That's God's intention. So what's the lie to the statement that um, I'm blessed or that I'm chosen is the second statement. 
what's the lie that comes to your mind when you hear this idea of God choosing? I would say the lie to the identity statement of being chosen is twofold. One, that God is removed from redemption and just wishes that people would notice his son, Jesus. Like he wishes he could be a part of it. He wishes he could convince us, but he just can't. He wishes he could just overwhelm us with his love, but he just can't. He's just waiting. And then that's the first lie, like he has no part in redemption. And number two, the lie would be, the second part of the lie would be, um, there's no need for sharing our story of God's love or the gospel or evangelism because God chooses. I think just to put it real um, uh, bluntly, um, we share Jesus because we've been instructed to share Jesus. And why wouldn't we share that which has changed everything about us? And so not only are we commanded, but you'd think it'd be natural. And so there is a need to share. We are called to share. So a lie to the identity claim of being chosen would be one that God doesn't really have a part in salvation. People, he's just hoping people would figure it out on their own. Or two, there's no need to evangelize. That's a lie. And so back to the scriptures here. We're blessed and we're chosen and that would be enough. Those two identity claims would be enough, but there's even more. Verse 5 says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So the first or the second word in the uh, last part of verse four says in love. And then we get into verse five. So because of Jesus, I'm loved. God chose us according to his love or in love. A definition of love that I've shared often in the podcast that would work here, I think, is a choice to yield to another's best interest. It answers the question, what does she need or what does he need? This is the kind of love the Father had for us when he sent his Son. This is the kind of love Jesus had for us when he went to the cross. This is the kind of love the Spirit has for us by taking up residence in our bodies. That's not to his interest, it's to ours. And so the Father loves you, not because you're so lovely, even though you uh, very well may be, but because he's so lovely. God demonstrated his own love toward us when and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So what's the lie one might believe or one might be tempted to believe in light of this identity claim that I'm loved. Well, of course, the lie would be um, that we're hated or that you're not loved, right? And that's dangerous. That can set you up to really have some significant struggles in life, to roll with the falsehood of not being loved. But God has made his love quite evident especially through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would challenge you to think about this even with God's help and just do some, maybe some writing or journaling. You know, what would the danger be in believing that you are not loved by God? So the scriptures tell us we're blessed, chosen, and loved, and that would be enough. But there's more. Verse 5 again, In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so just like we see the word chosen, here now we have a different word that's like that in a sense. Because of Jesus, I'm predestined. And that word can also be like for, called like foreordained. This means to define or decide beforehand. So what did God define or decide beforehand for these chosen ones? To be holy and blameless. This shows us both the purpose and the result, doesn't it? See, the lie is that life is all happenstance here, or like an accident. Um, Things are just by coincidence. But the mere fact that you exist means there's a purpose. And we're chosen so. And so we're chosen, we're blessed, loved, predestined, like we're on purpose for a purpose, is, is a way of saying that. And there's more. 
verse 5 again, In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So not only am I blessed, chosen, loved, predestined, but verse 5 tells us because of Jesus, I'm adopted. If you're in Christ, you've been adopted into his family. Maybe you've heard the expression, um, we're all God's children. And I would say that's half truth at a half truth at best, because in a sense we are because God's the creator and we are created. But actually we're born enemies of God. We're not born into his family. In salvation, though, we're brought into his family. The word adoption here means to place a son. So the implication is that God pursued people to have all the rights and privileges that belong to him. And maybe you've heard me share before that my wife and I, we have five children, the youngest of which is our son, Titus, who was adopted um, from Russia. He was born Kozhekin Vladimir Nikolaevich, and we have given him a change of name, and uh, he's, we've given him a home, we've given him a family. Titus has access to everything that is ours, our home, our love, our name, but we can't give him our character. He might have some similar interests. We might coach him to those interests, sway him and persuade him. But we can't give him our character. And that's the distinct difference between earthly adoption and a spiritual adoption. In fact, for those that are adopted by God into God's family, he gives us his nature. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says. Jesus speaks actually of this kind of adoption as well in John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the lie to this identity claim of adoption here is both overt and covert. First, the covert lie. The covert lie is that we're all God's children. But the more overt lie, the more like obvious one someone might believe is they might believe that God's abandoned them or that they're an orphan. That's a lie. The scriptures tell us that for those that are him, he'll never leave or forsake. He'll be with us even to the very end of the age, Christ says. So it's a, it's a huge doctrine of adoption throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament. John, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians here. So because of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you're adopted into his family. There's an exchange life, actually. This is where we get the sense of being born again. It's like you're reborn into his family. Look at the next verse. And this would be enough, but there's more. Verse 6 says, According to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's the idea of being blessed again. Verse 7 in him we have redemption through the, his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Huh. So we see the next identity claim here too. Is that because of Jesus, I am redeemed. We have redemption through his blood, the text says. To redeem is to purchase or buy back. In this sense, it was the paying the required ransom for the release of a person from bondage. Christ's sacrifice on the cross pays that price for us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, the Old Testament tells us. So it's redeeming us or purchasing us out of slavery to sin and to self. We have been redeemed is the idea. Paul even kind of shares more of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's writing to a church that's really struggling, especially struggling with sexual problems and issues, a lot of debauchery. They're trying to be, they're being saved out of that life. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Here's the redemption thought here. You were bought with a price. And what was the price that purchased, in a sense, our souls or our redemption? The blood of Christ. Then Paul says, so because of that, therefore honor God with your body. So the lie here to the idea of being redeemed, to the identity claim of being redeemed, is the notion that I can save myself. I don't need any help. I can just like buckle down and pull myself up by my bootstraps and try really hard and be a good boy. Or another version of the lie would be the lie to redemption would be like, I belong to myself and that I can do what I want with my body or my life without consequence or accountability. The text, the scriptures tell us that we don't belong to ourselves and we've been redeemed. We've been purchased. Hmm. I don't hear many people speaking uh, messages the opposite of, uh, of that in a sense. Usually the notion today is, you know, you do whatever you want. And you have freedom in a sense to do what you want, but not without consequence or accountability. I don't belong to myself anymore. I'm Christ. It's interesting when we think about even defending our rights. And I've just been doing a lot of thinking about that lately. What rights do I have? And what rights were given up? What does it look like to live a life of redemption? What rights would I willingly give up so that others might know the love of the Father? So, if I were to say, tell me about yourself, up to this point, you could say, well, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you could say, I'm blessed, chosen, loved, redestined, adopted, redeemed, and there's more. Verse 7 gives us even more. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So because of Jesus, I am forgiven. Our redemption brings the forgiveness of sin. And when you're forgiven, your forgiveness is real and final. It's secure. You're treated as if the wrongs you've done never happened. God doesn't freeze you out or cold shoulder you, which would be abuse. In fact, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. That's a word for sin. He removes them from us. So what would the lie be to the identity claim of being forgiven? The lie is that our guilt remains. So we hold on to the shame of our worst moments in life, that dumb thing you did four years ago. We let our sin define us. That would be a way of living a lie. We let sin define us rather than Jesus. So then as a Christian living with shame, we attempt to pay penance for the wrong things we've done and hoping that that will appease God. So we beat ourselves up. We hold on to guilt. So in a sense saying to God, Jesus plus my still feeling bad equals freedom. That's a lie. Jesus did the work. God's forgiveness is ready for the receiving. And you can live in it right now. So the truth is, is that when you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Past, present, future. And that would be enough. Paul shares some more really um, prayerful and praiseworthy thoughts here. In verse 8 he says... Um, So the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, now speaking of his grace, which he lavished upon all of us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The mystery here is that I am who I am because of Christ Jesus, that my identity as a Christian is a result of God's grace to me through Jesus 
So this informs us of who God is and what he is like. So the praise goes to him. But there's more. Listen to verse 11 through 14 here. In him, so in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So just one last identity claim for uh, this episode. Because of Jesus, I'm sealed. The text says that when you believe at that moment, God places his permanent seal on you, which is the Holy Spirit. His spirit indwells, the scripture tells us, secures, convicts, preserves, and does so eternally. This means we are his and under his authority and approval, like the king's ring having a seal on it uh, for a parcel or a letter to be sent. The Holy Spirit is given by God as his pledge of the believer's future inheritance and glory. So we're sealed, we're secure. What's the lie then? What would the lie be to that identity claim? It's that somehow we become unsealed or that we could need to live anxiously insecure about our place in God's family. But if it's by God's grace that sealed you, then it's his grace that sustained you, isn't it? You can't fall from grace and that's the point of grace. It's undeserved and that's why we should be so moved to worship and praise. It'd be like saying, by God's action, you were adopted and sealed, but by your action, you somehow become unadopted and unsealed. It doesn't make sense. So God's work in our salvation should result in our praise to him. Because of what Jesus has done, we have this new identity. And so I challenge you uh, to think through these things, to work through these things. Which of these identity claims is most precious to you today? Blessed, chosen. Um, What were some of the other ones that come to mind? Loved, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed. These are big, big, life-changing, eternal, eternity-changing identity claims. And they're available to you. If you're in Christ, this is you. What would it look like to live loved, to live approved? What would it look like to live forgiven instead of reminding yourself or sitting in remembrance of the terrible things that you've done in the past? You don't have to do that anymore. You're free. And so because of that, it should move you from um, gratitude to praise and to more freedom. I challenge you as you work through this letter of Ephesians with me to read it for yourself. Obviously, I want you to read it within context, but I also want to encourage you to read within not just the context to know the meaning of things, but also in light of God's character. That may be a new way of reading scripture for you, specifically the character and the nature of his love. Because of God's love, what would he want you to know about him and you, his plan in eternity? Because of Jesus, you have access to all these things and you can live in them right now. And I invite you to begin.